5. Wonderful passage. I'd encourage you perhaps to go away this afternoon and just read it again slowly. Um, that passage that starts, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be ignorant. Uh, and it talks about death. And often we live in a culture that's very ignorant of death and doesn't want to talk about it. So do um, turn back to that. We're just going to reflect today on one little verse hidden in the middle of that reading. Um, but before we do... Uh, about a month or so ago, I, walked, I, went up, I drove up to Snowdonia on a day off. Um, just wanted to get out of the village and do some walking in the mountains, as I love doing. And um, as I was walking through the mountains, um, I was thinking a bit about remembrance. I knew I was speaking today, and I was thinking about what kind of slant to take on today. And um, just spent some time being in God's creation and thinking and praying. And uh, when I came down, I went into a second-hand bookshop, and uh, I saw this book here called Elegy, The First Day of the Somme. Um, I love reading First World War history particularly. Uh, I read uh, some of the other books like Some Mud and 28 Days and some of the other ones, um, Birdsong, that many of you will be familiar with. And I thought, oh, I've never read this one. I'd, I'd pick it up. It was only £3, so I thought, I'll take that home and have a look. And uh, it was really quite moving because I turned to the first page. Has the enemy's front line been captured, asked the commanding officer of the 1st Battalion of the Newfoundland Regiment, Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Haddo. That's my great-grandfather. And I spoke here uh, two years ago, uh, in 19, it was 2016, 100 years on from the Battle of the Somme in 1916. And, um, and I, I remember telling you about um, Lieutenant Arthur um, Haddo, my great-grandfather, who commanded the, the um, Newfoundland Regiment at Beaumont Hamill. And uh, I had a picture on the screen. It was just a lovely, touching moment. I spent the day thinking about the First World War, and I pick up a random book that I'd never read, and the third line is my great-grandfather. Um, so that was a, a very touching moment. Um, today, though, we're thinking about, as we were learning with the children, we're thinking about remembering the end of the First World War, 1918. And uh, to do that this year, I thought it might be helpful for us just to reflect a little bit on two names that were read earlier in the service, two names of people who fought in the First World War, who lived in Long Crendon, just to try and bring home to us a sense of our history as many who come to the church here live in this village so we were at the War Memorial earlier today, and I went to visit that um, a month or so ago in beautiful sunshine. And I just noticed some of the names that were on the War Memorial. I then went down to St. Mary's Church down the road, and this is a memorial to the, those who died in the First and the Second World War. And um, you can see behind the poppies there this little plaque in proud memory of those men who fought for home and honour. And uh, it was just a lovely moment just to sort of reflect a little bit on our history. And I went away and I did a bit of research on just two kind of random names, names that meant nothing to me. One there underlined Joseph Beckett and the other Francis Cadle. And they're names that are on the plaque on the memorial that we stood at at 10 o'clock this morning. And I thought I'd just share a little bit of what I found out about them. Because again, it just brings home to us a sense of our history. Two men who lived in this village. Uh, Joseph Beckett... This is his gravestone. If you go down to St. Mary's and you walk through the gate and you kind of walk round the church towards the corner on the right-hand side at about 2 o'clock, you'll find this gravestone. Um, Erosion means it's very hard to read much that's on it, but I eventually tracked it down. And I found out a little bit about Joseph Beckett. He was in the Navy. Um, He was on the warship HMS Vindictive, which... Um, for the early part of the 20th century worked in the Mediterranean and then during the First World War HMS Vindictive was patrolling the White Sea um, looking after the waters around Russia Um, this ship apparently was famed for a a particular raid on one of the seaports where the Germans were launching their U-boats that were causing great devastation to the US Navy and so this ship was absolutely instrumental and Joseph Beckett fought on this ship 
Um, one of the great guns from this ship apparently is in the Imperial War Museum, if you want to follow this up and go and have a look. And apparently it's a very amazing thing to see. Well, that particular raid um, was unsuccessful, and the ship was actually sunk um, in May 1918. But you can see from the little plaque and information on the screen, that was just a, a month before, uh, after Joseph Beckett died. So this man who lived in Long Crendon, uh, came home and he died seven months after the end of the First World War and he was only 20 years old. And we don't know if he died of injuries or illness or uh, some other means. Um, but it's amazing to go down and just see his gravestone. And uh, amazing as well to recognize that his parents were just ordinary people who lived in this village. If you go to the high street and you find numbers 106 to 108, that was one house back then, and that's where his parents lived and they were shepherds in the village. Uh, This man, Joseph Beckett, was a very ordinary man, growing up in a very ordinary family, but fought on this great warship during the First World War and um, died soon after, age 20. And then this one here, this is apparently, I'm told, the only war graves commission um, gravestone anywhere in the village, and it happens to be in our graveyard. So if you were to leave after the service and walk up our grave, um, up through the graveyard, um, about two-thirds of the way up on the left-hand side where the sun is shining, you'll see this gravestone. Um, Francis Cadle. And again, a bit of information about him. I tracked down that he was in the Royal Engineers and the 314th um, Rail Construction Company were based in Cheltenham and his role in the war was to help build railways. This regiment were famed for building railways and the railways I was reading in this book were really instrumental in bringing uh, munitions and bringing supplies up to the front line. And so in many ways, whoever could build railways quicker were able to supply the men who were fighting quicker and had an advantage. And this man, Francis Cadell, was involved in this. Um, he lived in High Wycombe, but his parents lived on Burt's Lane. And uh, we've had people in the church here who've lived on Burt's Lane. Again, just around the corner here, you can walk up Burt's Lane and you can see where her, this man's parents lived. But he died um, three weeks after the end of the war in the village. He was aged 32. And again, we don't know how he died, of what means. But again, to go up and see this gravestone... Um, headstone in our own church graveyard there is just a a lovely moment just to remember two very ordinary men um, who lived very ordinary lives Um, just at the moment uh, we've got all this building work going on in the Chearsley Road and I found out that Francis Cadle's father um, built roads that's what he did for a living so as you walk up there now and see these guys digging up the road and rebuilding them perhaps you can think of this man Um, that man's son was Francis Cadle who died in the First World War Just two men, two of the millions of men who lost their lives in service of our country. And we mustn't forget, too, the extraordinary um, contribution that women had to the war. Um, Long Crendon, as many will know, was a farming community famed for lace. And there were many, many women who fought. A year after the beginning of the First World War, in 1915, um, the Women's Land Army was formed. Um, basically many, many women working on the farms to grow and produce food for this country and for those who were fighting overseas. Now, three million men went from England to fight in the First World War. Um, but by um, 1917, there were over a quarter of a million women fighting, as it were, in the land, women's land army, supplying food and producing um, to be a, a help to those who were fighting Well, if you were to read the gravestone at the memorial where we've just been at 10 o'clock, it says this. You might just better make it out, the words in the middle there. They died that we might live. And that's what today is about, isn't it? It's remembering those who died that we might live. 
Um, I read a quite an amazing statistic that if you were to want to understand the just the sheer number of people who lost their lives in the First World War, if you went down to Whitehall in London to where the Cenotaph is, which is the memorial for the First World War, if men stood four abreast, one, two, three, four, and they marched past the Cenotaph day and night for three and a half days, that's the number of people, men, who lost their lives in the First World War. It's astonishing, isn't it? To think this was just a hundred years ago. They died that we might live. And of course, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then that phrase there, they died that we might live, takes on a particular meaning. Because we think today as well as remembering those who lost their lives of our Savior who died that we might live. That wonderful verse in 1 Peter chapter 3, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. And so as we remember today, those that died that we might live, it's a wonderful opportunity too to reflect on our Saviour Jesus who died that we might live. And so I'd love us to reflect for a moment just on one verse in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 13. If you have your Bible there, you can look at it. And this is the only verse we'll look at today in any detail. But the Apostle Paul here writes to this young church in Greece And he says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Just three little observations to reflect on as we remember today. Do you notice that in this verse, the Apostle Paul talks about death as though it were just sleep? We've all seen a person sleeping in a bed. Uh, Many here perhaps have seen the body of a loved one after their life has ended, dead. And there's a huge difference between someone who's asleep and someone who is dead. You can tell who's sleeping and who is dead. Is it not extraordinary then that Jesus here, that Paul here, where he's speaking of all that Jesus has done, speaks about death as if it were just sleep? Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, that great declaration of what the cross and the resurrection of Christ has achieved. This the kind of triumphal outbreak. He says, what does he say? Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Paul was probably thinking of the Lord Jesus, where Jesus is called to the bedside of a little girl who's died. And he speaks those wonderful words, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. The little girl was dead. But Jesus described what had happened to this little girl as if she was just sleeping. It seemed like almost mockery to the family. Why are you talking about my daughter who's asleep? She's dead. But Jesus says, no, she's just sleeping. The reason being that for Jesus, to Jesus, death is like sleep. And just as you fall asleep in the evening and then wake up in the morning... That is what Jesus is able to do in death. And it's an astonishing thing to consider, isn't it? That death is to Christ as sleep. Notice as well in the verse there, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind. Interesting that Paul still says, as a Christian who's trusting in Christ, it is still right and proper to grieve in death. Grieve is unbelievable. Death is unbelievably painful. Uh, The separation that it causes is painful. The memories that are left behind is painful. And just because we're Christians and we believe in a hope after death doesn't mean that we can be flippant about death. doesn't mean that we don't feel the pain of death. Perhaps in some ways, if you're a follower of Christ, you ought to feel death more strongly. 
because you believe that life is not an accident. We're made in the image of God. So every life that ends is a particular tragedy. But it's interesting here where Paul's trying to help us to have a sense of perspective in death. He says, you still grieve. And we need as Christians to be people who give space to those who grieve in death. In the moment of death and many months and perhaps even years after death. Sometimes I think Christians can be slightly flippant in death because of the hope that we have. And we need to recognize the power of death, the pain of death. But Paul here talks about death being like sleep. He talks about the fact that we are to still grieve. But notice how we're to grieve. Do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Is that not the one thing that separates the Christian faith from all other worldviews and beliefs? I don't need to grieve as one who has no hope. We don't need to face death as those who have no hope. And that's a wonderful truth that only the Christian gospel can offer. And it's a wonderful thing to cling to and to thank God for. Death to Jesus is just as sleep. Death nevertheless leads to grief, deep grief. But Christian grief is different because we're called to not be people who grieve without hope. And we're given hope in Jesus. Just to help us to reflect on that for a few more moments, I want us to sort of fast forward a little bit from First World War to the Second World War. And many of you know that Dietrich Bonhoeffer is someone I love to read and reflect on. He's had a big influence on my life. Bonhoeffer was born in 1906, so he was just a pre-teen during First World War. But he became more well-known for the things that he spoke and the way that he acted during the Second World War. But he has a particularly poignant view of death And I just want to give us a few of his little quotes to reflect on because they help us to understand the depth of what Paul is saying here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Bonhoeffer says this, No one has yet believed in God and the kingdom of God. No one has yet heard about the realm of the resurrected and not been homesick from that hour, waiting and looking forward to be released from bodily existence. Bonhoeffer is saying it's the Christian gospel That gives us hope in death. Only Jesus. Only Jesus is the one who has an answer to our greatest problem that we can't solve ourselves. And he says when you come to understand all that Christ offers us. It does make you homesick for heaven. To be with him forever. And then he goes on and says this. Whether we are young or old makes no difference. What are 20 or 30 or 50 years in the sight of God? And which of us knows how near he or she may already be to that goal? That life only really begins when it ends here on earth. That all that is here is only the prologue before the curtain goes up. That is for young and old alike to think about. Why are you so afraid when we think about death? Death is only dreadful for those who live in dread and fear of it. Death does not need to be wild and terrible. If only we can be still and hold fast to the word of God. That's the quote that I've just read. Hope in death is the thing that sets the Christian faith apart from every other worldview, every other religion, every other philosophy. Hope in death. And so many here have that hope in death. But then he goes on and says something even more provocative about death. Death, he says, is grace. The greatest gift of grace that God gives to people who believe in him. That's hard to hear that. 
Really hard to hear that. How on earth can you talk about death being grace? But that phrase needs to be heard in its context. Let me read the context. Death is grace, the greatest gift of grace that God gives to people who believe in him. Death is mild, death is sweet and gentle. It beckons us with heavenly power. If only we realize that it is the gateway to our homeland, the tabernacle of joy, the everlasting kingdom of peace. How do we know that dying is so dreadful? Who knows whether in our human fear and anguish we are only shivering and shuddering at the most glorious, heavenly, blessed event in the world. Now if you almost sort of feel angry and you think Bonhoeffer's been quite flippant there, remember where Bonhoeffer is living and growing up. He witnessed more death than any of us. Probably he witnessed more death than all of us put together because of where he was living. He wasn't immune from death. He was not immune from suffering. But he was able to speak with great confidence about death being grace because he had utter confidence in what came after death. Well, Bonhoeffer was executed at Flossenburg Prison on April the 8th, 1945. But he was reported to say these words as he went to the gallows to be hung. This is the end. For me, the beginning of life. That was his understanding. And there was another man who was there, a man called Fichter Hulstrong. And this man saw Bonhoeffer go to be executed. And he's famously quoted to have said this. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued only a few seconds. In almost 50 years that I've worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man so die so entirely submissive to the will of God. See, Bonhoeffer's death had a profound impact on those around him because of the way that he died, because to him death was grace. And so he had this enormous and deep felt hope for what was to come. And as that man witnessed Bonhoeffer going to be executed and said, this man, I've never seen anyone die like that. Does that not remind you of something else in the word of God? When the Lord Jesus hung on the cross and what did the Roman executioner the centurion cry out, surely this man was the son of God. Why did he say that? Because he saw the way that this man died. And he saw that Jesus Christ was himself entirely submissive to the will of God. And so as you reflect on the First World War and the end of that tragic event, and as we reflected on those who died that we might live, as you reflect on the attitude and life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who died at the end of the Second World War, totally submissive to the will of God all of that acts as a picture of our saviour doesn't it who went to the cross for us that we might be able to say together through the pain and the tears of death death is grace because I'm going to be with my saviour forever and that is a glorious thing and so as we come to the Lord's table together I want to finish by reading Two gospel truths and two gospel encouragements. They come from 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 5. If it helps you just to reflect, perhaps you can close your eyes or otherwise just hear these words. But let these words encourage you as we continue in our service of remembrance this morning. Chapter 4, verse 14, Paul writes, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. And then verse 18, therefore encourage each other with these words. 
And then into chapter 5, verse 9. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. And an encouragement follows in verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing.